Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the Bumper End of Year podcast and what a year! It's been, <laughs> it's been awful! Uh, if only we knew what we knew last year, right? Man, can't believe we celebrated the coming of this year, can you? Uh, it, yeah, it's been bad, it's been really grim. Uh, you know, I've had a fairly brutal existence in parts but this year has been the worst. It's been a year of suffering and loss. Um, uh, yeah, not good. Not good at all. Not just the pandemic either. Just I've just had so much horrible things happen during the last uh, 12, 12 months, right? And I'm sure you have too, right? Some of you will have been ill. You'll have lost loved ones. You've lost the ability to do the things you want to do. You may have lost a job. Your business may be suffering, right? I, I get that it's been an awful year for everybody. So this is what we're doing, right? Uh, this podcast is it's a break from that that's what we're going to do we're going to have a break we're going to talk about karate and kata and bunkai and self-defense and training and we're going to give you the break that you so richly deserve you need a break from all of this you know you do so what i want you to do is put on the podcast listen to it while you're doing something you find fun and we'll just chat about other things there's a brief pandemic section because there's a few questions on that which I hope you'll find uh, useful but most of it we're just chatting about martial arts with the usual uh, silly jokes and all that kind of stuff I hope you know you laugh at least one student this when I write those jokes down I, I always kind of play with them a bit no don't say that yeah that's funny yeah, yeah that's it and then when I finally got it and I listened to it back, if it makes me laugh, I've got to figure it's going to make someone else laugh too, right? So I hope that it does. What I've also put in this podcast is a selection of happy thoughts. So one of my coping mechanisms for dark times is to find my happy thoughts. Of that time when I'm down, I'm on my knees, and, you know, all hope has gone. It's like find the happy thought. Because you can find that thought, you know, that spark that can light a fire, that little dot of light that can illuminate the darkness. It can keep you going. Um, so hopefully some of my happy thoughts resonate with, with you too, right? And of course, you know, we're, we're all different. You know, we all cope with things in different ways. And we're martial artists. We know that you can't use the same technique all the time. You've got to use the technique that's relevant for the circumstances. So to get you through this, and you know what, I care about you. I want you to get through this, right? So to get you through this, you need to find the tools that work for you. So sometimes, you know, it's good to be defiant and, and, and stand up to circumstances and, you know, have that fire in your belly, feel like you can take on the world. And then sometimes it's just good to crawl under the duvet for a day, you know, weep your tears and eat comfort food, right? And, and also, some days it's okay to give up for a day, right? It's okay to give up for a day. If you feel it's all weighing you down and you don't know how you're going to cope, give up. Just put it down for a day. Don't give up for good. Just give up for a day. And then the next day, see how you're feeling then. And I bet you feel a little bit better and you've got a little bit more strength and a little bit more energy and you'll be able to keep on, on going forwards. You know, find your, your way through this. Talk to people as well, you know, especially this time of year when we're not able to mix and mingle as we like. I know there'll be a lot of you feeling lonely, but I'm here for you. I'm here to keep you company. You know, but if, if you're feeling like low and on your own, you know, reach out to people. Just because you need to be physically distant doesn't mean you still can't connect with people. Hopefully you've got a, a good friend or a good family member who's a good listener. You know, and if there's not, you know, seek, seek out the help you need. There are a lot of good people out there that will be able to help you, you know, find your way, uh, your way through this. And it's one of the things that I found beautiful about this pandemic. Not that much of it is, but I've been genuinely moved to tears by the care and generosity that people have shown me, and 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 and, and the same when I've seen people do it. For everyone else there's a lot of good people in this world there's a lot of idiots as well right we know this but there's a lot of really good people too and one of the things that when i've seen the level of compassion that people have for one another for no gain just simply for their shared humanity and the desire not to see another human being suffer one iota more than they need to that's been a really beautiful thing and i've got to think that once this is all passed I think that's been awakened a little bit more, that, that sense of community and, and pulling together and, and looking out for one another. So you know, maybe that's one of the things that will concentrate uh, on, on better days better days ahead. Right then, back to the uh, <laughs> the usual silliness. Uh, um, I've divided the podcast up into sections again, um, you know, based on the, the, the theme of each question, so I hope you enjoy that format. Uh, Interspace with the usual adverts and stuff. So before we get to the first question, here's our first word from one of our sponsors. 
coming in 2021. People! From the company who brought you a belt tied to a bag, People! This 3D moving interactive training experience will take your martial arts to the next level. People! Actual real people! Available while stocks last. So self-defense questions. The first one is, what are some good ways to teach someone situational awareness? Do you think this is an overlooked part of self-protection training because it's much harder to conceptualize and pass on that knowledge than to teach someone a good punch? So I think there's a couple of elements to that as well because martial arts training and self-protection training are different. So in my experience of good self-protection training, situational awareness isn't overlooked. Uh, however, in martial arts practice, it often is uh, for the reasons that, that Patrick outlines. You know, the dojo's not a good environment to teach that kind of stuff, really, because people are there to move. You know, they want to work out. They want to get a sweat on. So the idea of sitting down and discussing things, whereas, which you would do in a, a self-protection environment, which often has a classroom uh, component, it's not really what people want to do. So what I try and do is, uh, when I'm doing this pure self-protection, we sit down and we talk about it. Uh, when I'm doing it in the martial arts classes, I kind of drip it in. So I try to infuse it into the training uh, over time. But the key part of it is we need to educate people as to the nature of criminal behavior. Uh, a lot of martial artists tend to go, oh, be aware. But, but as I've always said, that's not enough because they need to know what to be aware of. Uh, now, now, once they've got an idea of criminal behaviour and, and how that tends to work and they've looked at the crime statistics and there's any amount nowadays of, of, of video footage you can study, once that's been done, uh, it's not something that you can really get them to do in the dojo uh, or, the, or the classroom. What you've got to do is give them exercises they can do outside of those things. Uh, so a, a great one, a nice simple one, is the internal commentary walking. So the idea with this is that you, while you're walking you and going about your day-to-day -day business, you in, uh, maintain an internal dialogue of what you can see around you. You know, so I'm, I'm walking out the door, I can see my car, I'm sitting in the car, I'm looking behind, you know, and on and on and on. So it, it, it gets you used to being aware. Uh, uh, at a certain point, this kind of comes habit. So I always refer to it like your antivirus software on your computer. It, it's just running away in the background uh, doing its thing. Now, once people have got into the idea of doing a little bit of internal commentary walking, there's some games that can play too. So you say, okay, the next time you leave your home and you're going out, uh, imagine that you know with certainty that you're going to be attacked sometime during that trip. So, uh, so who is it going to be, and how are they going to attack you? So, so again, it's this brief period of hyper vigilance, where people are on the lookout, playing the game. You know, so as they're going about the day-to-day -day business, they're looking for that potential attacker that they've imagined for themselves. So, again, that will help them look around them, assess things, and see if anything looks out of place. And another version of that is. You can go out and say, okay, I'm the criminal. So if I was a criminal on this particular trip, who would I attack? What would I be looking for? So, you know, it's the old Sun Tzu saying, you know, know the enemy and know yourself. So spend a little bit of time thinking like a criminal. You know, I've always, whose car would I steal? Who would I attack? Whose money would I take? And then you start to spot people making mistakes. Well, if you can see it, the criminal will see it too. And he can make you more aware not to do those mistakes. And as I say, eventually it becomes habit. Um, it no longer becomes something you think about. But that process of that internal monologue for, for periods of time, and you have to revisit every now and again and do a little bit of a refresher, but, but doing that will help. So in the dojo, we'll talk about what criminal behavior is, we'll talk about the crime stats, we'll infuse that into general training, and then we'll give them exercises to do outside the dojo. So there's a lot more to it than that, but that would be kind of be uh, the basics of how to get that into position. So the next question is from uh, Michael in Denmark. He says, uh, how to be a good bad guy? How do we as instructors give the right input to develop good responses? And how do we teach our students to be good bad guys? So this kind of relates to the, the other one, really. You, know, it, it, you need to know your enemy. Um, so for all scenario-based drills, it, it comes down again to knowing how bad guys operate. Now, once we've got that knowledge, we then need the basic acting skills 
to recreate those realistic uh, scenarios. And the great thing about this is our brains are not good at telling us the difference between real and recreated experiences. Now, and the obvious example for this, and I use this at the seminars a lot, is our whole entertainment industry is based on that fact. So w when we read books, you know, we we'll read a thriller and go, oh, that was really thr thrilling. It was really exciting. Well, it's ink on a page or, you know, I played this video game and it was, you know, again, such an enjoyable experience, you know, because again, it's, you know, it's, it's dots on a screen or you go to a movie, it's light shining on a wall, but you have a real emotional reaction to these things. So uh, even if it's not 100% realistic down to the, you know, the finest details, so long as it broadly is, your brains will treat that as a realistic experience that you can then draw on if you're ever unfortunate enough to find yourself in a real experience. So again, there's lots of video footage we can study. One issue is that we need to get used to the aggressive dialogue as well. It's not just people doing the, you know, defending against hook punches and shoves and all that kind of stuff. You need to get used to the way that people will deceive and intimidate and, and use aggression in dialogue. And that'll include, you know, using bad language to shock and intimidate. So you need to be mindful of that and you need to be mindful of where it is you're practicing and if anyone's sensitive to that. But the inclusion of bad language in the training uh, helps remove its effect because, yeah, okay, I've seen this before. This happens in the dojo, you know, every couple of weeks and this criminal is no better at it than them, you know. So it kind of desensitizes you uh, to it. I mean, one thing with this as well is we need to be sensitive to people's prior experience as well. And we need to be careful that we don't accidentally recreate past trauma. So we, we don't want to throw people in the deep end and, and, and suddenly have them flooded with uh, horrible, inappropriate emotions because we've triggered some past trauma. So we've got to build it up gradually over time as well. It, you know, we don't, we don't need to throw people into the deep end. We build it up gradually uh, in, a, in, in a positive environment with positive reinforcement. But yeah, we need to know how bad guys act and then we need the acting skills to re, uh, recreate it. Happy thought number one. The summer of 2021 is likely to be the best summer in living memory. So the next question is from Henry Bradley. He said, do you think there will be an increased need for self-protection once everything goes back to normal post-COVID? I'm thinking that for at least a few months after nightclubs, etc. open again, people won't but have been used to having people in such close proximity in that kind of environment. People will be on edge and it may take a while to become used to being packed into somewhere like a nightclub. And I think there's two sides to this, you know, if you look at the COVID thing. I think one positive, if I can use that word inappropriately, is that people have became hypervigilant about the personal space. You know, here in the UK, we say two metres, you know, it's one half in other parts of the world or, or whatever. So so that can be turned into something positive. You know, like, you know, yesterday, for example, I'm queuing to do my shopping and I'm very aware there's a guy behind me who's moved too close. He hasn't got a mask on either. So and I take a step away and politely ask him if he wouldn't mind stepping back a bit, which he does. Right. So it, it, everyone will be like that at the moment. So that's something we can turn to a positive. You know, be aware of when people enter your personal space, not just because of infections and things, but because once they're in the personal space, they, they potentially could uh, could harm you. What I am worried about is that I think people are likely to overindulge in the things that have been denied to them. So, you know, people have, haven't had a good night out. They haven't been to the pub for ages. You know, as the spring and the summer come and the vaccine's rolling out and people are back in the pubs, you know, it, it, I mean, I can say, I think this is probably going to be one of the best summers anyone's ever had, right? Because we're all going to be really enjoying things that have been denied from us. But there's a, p a potential that people will overindulge, you know, so they'll get too drunk. They'll, 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 they won't be aware of the surroundings as a result of that. And of course, criminals know this. So I, I would suggest that the criminal fraternity will not know because you know it might have been a lean time for them too right uh, and they'll be thinking okay once this is over you know and, and everyone's kind of letting the guard down to a great degree this is a time that we'd be able to exploit so yeah i, I, th I think that the, henry raises a good point there we just need to be aware to people that the same rules pre-pandemic apply post-pandemic you know don't be paranoid you know make sure that you live your life enjoy your life 
but take those sensible precautions to make yourself a more difficult uh, target and be sure not to win overindulge. And as I say, the awareness of personal space. You know, it's something, I mean, you think of like in, uh, people who've been in prison tend to have that quite naturally because it's something they do. You know, they, 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 you know, they don't like people getting too close to them. And then, of course, you know, as martial artists, we tend to be very aware of space, you know. Uh, but I think everyone's going to be more aware because of the COVID restrictions. So, um, yeah, it's something that could be turned into a positive. So the next question is from Martin Goffin, and he asks, is there such a thing as a natural fighter? So there's no doubt that some people have attributes that make it easier for them to defend themselves than others. So if you're a big, strong guy, you know, you're less likely to be a victim of crime in the first place. And if you are, you've got all that, that, that strength to help you out, right? But, you know, things like speed, focused aggression pain tolerance, all these kind of things, you know, people have these to lesser or greater degrees, and the more of these natural attributes you've got, the less training it takes to develop and hone them, so therefore, you know, you've got an advantage. But I, I don't believe that there's anyone who's incapable of defending themselves, uh, protecting themselves from violent crime. Uh, and, and I've said this at seminars because it's innate. Every single one of us comes from a long line of survivors. Every single one of your ancestors, all of them, survived long enough to have children. Uh, and therefore, we all have a finely honed survival instinct. You know, I think sometimes martial arts training can get in the way of that stuff as well. You know, we have to be careful how we do it. But we've got these natural abilities. And training should be about developing and enhancing those natural uh, abilities. I think what we do have in the modern world, thankfully, is we live in an environment that's comparatively safe compared to what some of our uh, forefathers and foremothers had to deal with, right? The, the chances of you being a victim of violent crime are thankfully pretty low, generally speaking. Of course, it depends on where you live and which specific part of the world you live. But if you look at overall, the chances of you being a victim of violence are far lower now than they were, you know, even two or three decades ago. You know, it, it, things are, despite sometimes people want to dramatise that the world's getting worse, the statistics don't really bear that out. So we're lucky enough that we don't have to use these natural instincts on a day-to-day -day basis. But, but I think once you get someone training, you can tap into them. They're there. They're just generally kind of buried a little bit. You know, they're rusty, for want of a better expression. But once you can teach people that they can be powerful, fast, um, explosive, aggressive, and, you know, aware of the surroundings, you know, you teach people that these things are there, um, then, then it's something that anyone can do. So, the, yeah, there's no doubt that natural uh, attributes can help, but I think it's something that everyone's capable of doing. So the next question is from uh, Steve Bertram. He said, which throws would you favour in your teachings for self-defence? Easy to learn, easy to apply, tactically sound. Uh, how do you teach throws in your dojo and what are your preferred steps? So when it comes to pure self-protection, I would not teach throws. Uh, throws are generally complex, they require close proximity, uh, they increase the risk of a floor fight, and they don't create space in the way that striking does. So if you've got someone coming to you to train for you know a matter of weeks or months, uh, throws are way too advanced a skill. You know It's not something I, I, I would teach them, because they're not ever going to be able to pull them off. Now that's not to say that martial artists with lots of experience can't make them work though. So I do teach throws as part of the martial arts training, and, and people do reach a skill level with them that they could use them in self-protection, could use them effectively in self-protection. Um, so to me, I, I, there's basically three kinds of throw, because all throws require you getting the center of gravity of the opponent outside the base in such a way that they can't move their base, they can't recorrect by taking a step. Uh, and there's only three ways you can take them taking a step or four right good one is you hit them hard in the head and then there's no one at home to tell them to take a step right as my friend steve calls it the one-fisted throw punch him in the face and they fall over but if we're talking about throws pure then there's three types right you've got ones that disrupt posture so people can't step you've got the one where you put your leg in the way of their leg so they can't take a step and then finally you've got the lifting throws where you lift one or more legs off the ground so they can't take a step now in terms of their order, I think postural disruption throws are easier to apply. Then it will be the leg-blocking throws. And finally, it's the lifting throws that are the most difficult. But it's also a lot dependent on body type. So I, I found, whereas things like strikes, you can... The way a... You know, a 16-stone person gets his body weight into the strike will be pretty much the same as a 9-stone person, right? That The mechanics of those are the same. But when it comes to throwing... 
you, you've really got to choose the type of throw that fits your body type and apply it in a way that works for you. So the way I do it in my dojo is we teach a variety of throws, um, both from you know the old text, the ones we find in katas, or the ones that I like. So the students learn a variety, and, and as they reach their kind of higher Q grades, I then start allowing them to specialize in the throws that they have selected for their body type and their preferences. So um, lower grades have set throws that they've got to do. Uh, as I say, as they get up towards the higher Q grades, the grading syllabus then starts saying, oh, I wish you to demonstrate three throws with an escape, uh, three throws with a ground fighting finish. You know, we run through all the various contexts of both consensual and non-consensual um, um, violence. Uh, but the payoff for that is because they've chosen those throws, I, I want them to be exceptional. You know, I want them to be able to do these throws incredibly well because they're specializing in ones that suit their body type. They'll know and maintain all the others, but they're choosing the ones that work best for them. So th that's how, how kind of we do it. So for pure self-protection, I wouldn't teach throws. For martial artists who have learned throws, I would say explore them all. Uh, find the ones that suit your body type best and specialize in those. And generally speaking, in, in ease of application, postural disruption throws, you know, you palm heal him in the head, his head's tilting over, you put your hand on his back and keep pushing. Very, very simple by comparison. Leg blocking throws next and the th lifting throws are the ones I would say are the most advanced. Plagued by feelings of happiness, contentment and security? Then ask your doctor about 2020. Our new improved formula is guaranteed to help increase depression, anxiety, feelings of helplessness and financial difficulty. 2020 is the leading product when it comes to global distress. Talk to your doctor to see if 2020 is right for you. It's not right for anyone, but prescription is mandatory. Side effects of 2020 include early stages of Tiger King binge watching, excitement about making banana bread, trash cans full of disappointing banana bread, increased alcohol consumption, friends developing delusions of being experts in virology, abandoned attempts to learn new languages, the realization that you'll never be able to play a musical instrument, news aversion syndrome, the development of misanthropic tendencies, and rage against people people who can't work out how to unmute themselves on Zoom. 2020, the most effective way to relieve all the things you didn't want to be relieved of. So the final self-defense question is from Fred Bland. He said, uh, karate was a method intended for dealing with thugs. At this point, don't we need to be prepared for what needs to be done to survive? Don't we need to be ready to fight dirty? Uh, we do, and it always was. You know, if you read Funakoshi's books, uh, he talks about spitting in the face to distract them. Uh, Itaman talks about biting and spitting, eye gouging, etc. Uh, deception is talked about an awful lot. Um, in the Babishi, it's talked about. Mabuni talks about it. Funakoshi talks about it. Um, Motobu talks about it. Uh, there's a famous tale of, of Motobu sitting in a restaurant where a guy comes in wanting to fight him with a knife. Uh, Motobu tries to talk him down, but he's not having any of it. Motobu then goes, okay, let's go outside after you. As the guy turns his back, Motobu Mayagerries him in the back and drops him, right? Front kicks him in the back and drops him. So the the old masters were quite clear of these, what we might call dirty fighting, you know, biting, spitting, eye gouging, grabbing the groin, all that kind of stuff. It's all in there. And they're happy to use deception too. And of course, these are the tools that, you know, thugs will use as well, of course. I think when we're talking about these methods as well, just to briefly mention, you know, the, the biting, the eye gouging, the testicle grabbing and stuff, I think sometimes the, the effectiveness of those alone is overestimated. You know, you sometimes hear this idea, well, in a real fight, I just kick him in the groin and that's it. It doesn't quite work that way. You know, the, the, these methods that are taking out of combat sports, we need to include them back in into our self-protection-based training. Uh, but we mustn't overestimate their effectiveness. So you stick a thumb in someone's eye, it's unlikely he's going to quit at that point, but it may create a reaction. You know, as he whips his head backwards or he slaps your arm out of the way, it'll create a reaction that you can then exploit. So it's dangerous to rely on them al alone. And we also have this thing which I call uh, the rules paradox, where sometimes by removing the dirt you actually make people more effective. So to give an example of that, you get these throws in classical jujitsu where the throw will have the recipient land on the head. And then they'll criticize the throws of judo where it has them land safely on their back. And then you ask this you know, traditional jujitsu guy, well, do you practice your throws live? And they go, oh, no, 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 we don't. They're far too dangerous. And then, of course, you got the judo dojo where they're actually practicing their 
safer in air quotes uh, throws live so in terms of which throws are going to be most most effective it will be the judo guy's throws because he's practiced them against a resisting opponent in training we do uh, include the eye gouging and all that kind of stuff but we as you know if you train with me directly but we we substitute it so i'll say if you put your thumb above your partner's eyebrow you have to react to that if your partner grabs the belt knot, you have to act as if that was the groin being seized. It's that, that, that kind of stuff. And as regards all of this dirt as well, I think an important thing with this is that it's morally neutral. So we, we tend to think of this as dirty fighting, but we're thinking of it in that way because we're thinking of combat sports as being clean fighting. Right? So we're saying, well, if, you know, if someone bit someone in combat sports, that's dirty, it's underhand, which of course it is. Uh, but in the self-protection context, it's, it's the norm, right? So, um, so the, 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 the tool is morally neutral. It's the end that it puts to that counts. So you know, when, when the criminal is sticking his thumbs in your eyes, he's doing that for a, an immoral purpose. But for the person who's trying to get someone off them and puts the thumb in their eyes to create a reaction, the same action in that case is, 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 is morally just, I would, I would say. So uh, you know, we need to be careful on that front as well. It's, it, they're not really, um, it's not really dirty fighting. We're using the definition of uh, combat sports uh, there you know it's just it's simply fighting itself and the final thing for this stuff of course is you need to be aware of uh, perceptions um from a legal point of view too so i say when you bite someone for example we're not looking to bite chunks out of them because that that is one is incredibly unhygienic and the other thing with it is it will, it will almost certainly be viewed negatively and can be turned against you in the, in the legal aftermath, right? If the criminal lies about one that, what went on and they're missing a chunk, it's more likely to believe that they're the innocent party and you're guilty. But as I've talked about, you know, that, think of like nipping with the teeth, you know, hard nipping and, and aggressively, you know, that kind of head shake and everything else. That can cause the reaction which we can then use to kind of escape and, and do everything else. So there's a lot to this. You know, I, I did a podcast on this a while ago, of course, called Band, you know, the, where I looked at all the, the rules of all the combat sports and went through the techniques that were universally banned from them. So that might be a nice follow-up for, uh, for that one. But yeah, always an interesting point. So thanks for the question, Fred. So welcome to the first and what I hope will be the last ever pandemic section <laughs> of the end of year podcast. Uh, the first one is from Daniel Mourinho. He says, what changes in the karate world do you think will stick around once the pandemic is finally behind us? Do you anticipate that online training will become more the norm? So th this pandemic has obviously been awful for everyone in all kinds of ways. But for martial artists, it's been terrible. You know, we, we haven't been able to train in person with people. Uh, it's been hugely disruptive to, to clubs and dojos. You know, it, it's not been good. But there are some good things that have came out of it. I think there's been some really innovative ways of solo training. That have been uh, developed. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about that because there's other questions relating to that in a moment. But as regards the online training, I think it's made it uh, acceptable to people and it's made them see the value in it too. It's obviously no substitute for being in the room with, with people. You know, it's just not. But but as a, a supplement for movement training, for, for, for fitness training, for communicating concepts and ideas, you know, it, it works perfectly well. Now, the first time I ever did a session on Zoom is way back. And that was at the request of a friend of mine in North Carolina, uh, 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 Donnie Abel. So Donnie had asked me, you know, will you do an online session for the bunkai of Kanku Show? Uh, for my guys, you know, yeah, I can, can do that, you know, and his wife, Patty, is very familiar with Zoom, so she took me all through it and explained to me how it worked, and we did it over a weekend, and it was loads of fun, and people seemed to enjoy it, and I, I, I got a lot out of it, and then I was telling people, oh yeah, you know, I taught a seminar in North Carolina this afternoon over Zoom, and they're all, well, how does that work, how can that possibly work, and people kind of really dismissed the idea. Uh, and then we did another one as well. We did one on, on Nijishiho as well, and uh, and that worked fine too. And then, of course, you know, the pandemic hits and everybody's kind of forced online. So, And then people realize it is no substitute for two-person training, but it can definitely be a good supplement for it. 
So I don't think individual dojos will continue doing it. If you can go to the dojo and train with the same people in person, why would you do it online? You know, you, you might supplement it with the odd online class, you know, um, but, but you, you wouldn't do that regularly. But the big advantage I see for it is it just overcomes distance. So, for example, you know, normally to teach in Germany, I've got to drive to the airport, I've got to get on a plane, I fly in London. But during this, I've done quite a few sessions for my friends in Germany. I've done sessions for friends in Australia, in, in, in Texas, in uh, Canada. You know, I, I've been able to teach uh, people uh, that are a long way away from me in time and distance, but I've been able to teach them quite easily. Um, you know, I just set up my computer and stuff 10 minutes beforehand and, you know, we all log on and we, we, we do it. So I think for that side of things, I think online training is here to stay. Uh, and for certain topics, um, he's, he's talking about historical things, movement drills, fitness drills, um, soft skills types, type stuff. I think it works really well. That webinar format, if you like, works really well. Um, and again, it saves people having to, you know, travel long distances themselves to be there. They've just got to log on and they're there. So, yeah, I think the online thing, it will be a, a permanent fixture of martial arts training going forwards. And I think that's a, it's a really positive thing. Happy thought number two. All the things you took for granted will return and they will make you happier than you were before. So the next question is from Tony Smith. He says, karate has taken on many changes throughout its history. The transition from um, civilian self-defense system to being incorporated in the school system of Okinawa. The Japanese adding the doe aspect and the sporting elements. All of these were significant turning points in how karate was taught. What evolutionary traits do you think traditional karate will adopt from the COVID era, if any? So I, I think the, the two key things, right? I, I think... And it relates to Daniel's question. The online training thing is here to stay. You know, that's a positive thing. But but I, I think, not just karate either, but, but I think all of the martial arts have recognized uh, the value in focused solo training. Right, that that's designed to eventually refuse with the with the partner training. So for example, you know, I've seen Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners talk about how they intend to keep the solo drills that they've developed post-pandemic because they found them to be incredibly useful. Uh, a nice way to make people aware of their own movement uh, before they start doing it with, with, with a partner and you've got their movement to get in there as well. So the, they're things that I see across the whole martial arts, not just karate. I think the online training is, is here. I think some of the solo training methods that have like exploded, if you like, during the pandemic uh, will become more mainstream, the solo pad drills and stuff like that. And then I think through the entirety of the martial arts, I think we'll see a, a lot more of focused solo training, supporting and supplementing the partner work, which karate's always had, of course. That's what Kata's there for, right? It, it, it's a, a repository of knowledge and a supplementary form of practice. Uh, um, and I think that other arts have definitely picked that up too. So, so yeah, I, I think that once we get back to normality, I think those positive things will, will, will continue. It has to be a good thing, right? Next question is from Gareth Nixon. He said, do you have any thoughts on how to effectively grade practical karateka if we still can't get close up during the pandemic? Uh, how are you de dealing with this? So I, I think that's a really good point, see. So my first thought when the pandemic hit was, well, the gradings are off until we've ridden this out. We'll, we'll keep kind of doing the solo training stuff online and then we'll eventually kind of, you know, get to a point where we'll get back in the dojo and we'll pick the gradings up then. Uh, as it dragged on, I started to realise, you know, the things I'm giving the students to do, they have made massive progress on. Uh, and I've been really impressed with it, especially when I got back into the dojo. It's still all socially distanced, but I can see it 3D. I'm thinking, man, their kata's got really good, you know, and their movement drills are looking great, and this drill and that drill. But obviously, they can't do the things they would normally do. So they can't do the gripping, the throwing, and the grappling, and the sparring stuff, you know. Um, so what I did was, I, I simply looked at our grading syllabus and went, right, what solo things from higher grades can I bring down and what partner things can I push up? So I've rearranged the syllabus. We have a COVID era grading syllabus um, whereby we have them. So, for example, if they want to learn a kata and a bunkai, they're now going to learn 
that cutter and the cutter above, and they'll learn the bunkai for both of them for the belt beyond that, right? My, 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 my approach has been, it doesn't matter when they learn it, really, so long as they've learned all of it before they hit black belt. That, that's, that's the point. So I've shuffled things, things around a bit. I've also brought in some of the solo training elements that we've been doing into the grading syllabus, which will remain post-COVID too. So the solo drills that we've developed, which involve ground fighting movements and grappling based movements, as well as all the impacting stuff, uh, we're keeping those. Uh, uh, they will be part of the grading requirement going forwards. So in my case, I've, I've took the solo stuff down, I've put the partner stuff up, uh, and I've also introduced some uh, other elements that we're going to keep as well. So we had a grading last week. Um, all the students did incredibly well, absolutely exhausted by the end of it. We were lucky that the only two people we had ready to do a Dan grading uh, are father and son. So they were in the same bubble. So in their case, they did a normal grading with uh, all the grading examiners sitting on separate tables in the corner of the rooms, right? Um, so yeah, not easy. But I, I do think it's important as well, you know. So I, I don't think people should make the mistake I made and just went, okay, we're not doing it. You might decide that for the higher Dan grades because I understand that's difficult to do and they've only got to wait, you know, a few more months anyway. But for the Q grades where people have made progress and they've worked hard, during an incredibly difficult period, I think it's right that there's some acknowledgement of that. You know, you, you know that they've made progress. They don't feel like they've just treaded water for a year. So I, I think we do need to look at how we're going to get people grading, and that, that's how I've approached it. As the end of the pandemic slowly comes into view, we here at the Batchet Crazy Institute of Conspiracy Theories feel it's important to act now before science and facts spoil all our fun. Please act quickly to bolster your feelings of superiority and to enjoy getting angry at those who actually know what they're talking about. Please spread the following bullshit at the earliest opportunity. We are all been made to wear masks so no one notices Bill Gates is stealing noses as we sleep. The real reason for the vaccine is to implant micro cameras into our eyeballs to improve the YouTube algorithm for recommended videos. The pandemic was actually manufactured by Xerox to stop them having to fix their machines in January 2021 due to the traditional mass photocopying of arses that would normally occur at Christmas parties. Zoom meetings can give you cancer. Act fast before everything starts to go back to normal and we're made to look incredibly foolish. So the next question is from Brian Bates, who has some great solo training stuff too, if you're not following Brian on, on Instagram. He's uh, been putting up a lot of great uh, bag drills and pad drills and stuff, really good stuff. So he says, uh, not been able to do partner work, what new training methods have you introduced due to COVID and will you keep them in place when the pandemic is over? Uh, we will. The, the solo pad drills, for example, uh, were always something that we did, but there were never a grading requirement. But we've done a lot more of them We've expanded upon them and we've in, uh, innovated by adding in groundwork and throwing solo movements into them as well. So um, they're there now. That, that will be a permanent part of our practice. The other main thing for us is I developed that uh, Tandoku kata. So I, I create a, a solo pad drill kata. Uh, which I thought putting it in kata format will make it more enjoyable for students to learn. It'll make it into a good workout. Uh, and, and then they've got a big drill instead of just a series of little ones. So uh, that kata is, is something that will be a grading requirement from now on in. It's a permanent part of what we do now. Um, and that's solely in place because I, I developed it as a COVID era training method. But I've enjoyed working on it myself that much. The students have really enjoyed it. Of course, we've we've taught it to the app users and um, who've I've given certificates to to those who demonstrate competence in it. And I know a lot of people are out there using it. So that thing's it's no longer mine either. Now I see people making their own versions of it and stuff. So it may have started with me, but there's a Tandoku kata there out in the wild that lots of people are making use of, which I think is great. So that's going to be a permanent part of our practice too. And the final question is from Lee Taylor. So again, you all know Lee, right? You should be checking out Lee's stuff as well if, you, if you're not already. Uh, at Lee Taylor Karate. Uh, Lee said, what will be the first drill you do at your dojo uh, when contact training resumes? So, right, so here in the UK, um, the government has actually produced a 
a plan for contact combat sports specifically for us and they have a phased return so at the moment in the uk we're in uh, tiers so depending on the infection rate and the, the spaces in the hospitals and stuff depends in which tier you're in uh, uh where i live we're in tier two uh, there's tier three which is higher and there's tier one, which is, is lower, right? In tier one, according to the government's guidance now, and check this out for yourself, right? Uh, pad work is allowed. So I'm hoping that when we drop down a bit into tier one, the first drill I'll be doing is part of pad drills with all suitable protocols in place, people using their own gear, masks, limited time periods, dedicated partners, all that kind. But if you mean when it's all done, because um, on the government guidelines, it says that the so solo training is allowed in all three tiers right i'm sorry to interrupt but this is ian from the future so just to avoid any confusion uh, shortly after recording that the english uh, authorities introduced a tier four uh, which is effectively a full lockdown where no training is permitted uh, apart from online obviously so uh, check out the rules uh, the contact combat sport rules on the government website for official guidance but i don't want to add to any confusion and there's obviously been a lot of it uh, but if you look on there it's uh, pad work with various protocols in place is allowed in tier one areas uh, tier two and three you can do socially distance solo training uh, tier four no training at all other than online training but again don't take my word for it right go to the source read what it says on the government website or check with your governing body but i thought i should drop this in because the situation is confusing enough without me inadvertently adding to it okay i'll now pass you back to a slightly younger version of me Uh, um, but pad work with a partner is only allowed in tier one uh, on the government guidance it says that partner work um is i think it's phase th three i think he says it's currently not permitted you can't do it anywhere so when partner training is resumed uh the first drill we'll be doing at my dojo is very very gentle playing for grips again with very very gentle light touch contact because i can see this being an absolute bloodbath <laughs> when this returns because people will be so excited to be able to hit one another again and they'll be so excited to get hit and you add that to the fact that their timing distancing and control will be way off right because they haven't practiced that element with a living breathing human being for quite some time uh it will be carnage the first thing i'll be doing when contact resumes is those basic playing for grip drills basic movement drills very light contact the stuff i start my beginners off on because i want everyone to get their eye back in uh, before we go back to the kind of stuff we were doing when we have like effectively mini group riots in the dojo with everybody fighting everyone else and protecting and fighting each other in groups i'm going to build that up to it slowly otherwise it won't be the pandemic that's overwhelming the local hospitals it'll be excited martial artists getting carried away on the first day back so yeah when we get back in and it's pure contact uh, yeah the gentle stuff that we do with my beginners and i'll be making everyone do it until i'm sure they can do it safely So now we've got questions related to teaching. Uh, first one is from Greg Davis. He says, as practitioners, should we be able to have a better understanding as to the effects of techniques on the human body? Uh, I would say yes, for two reasons. Because the first one is people often underestimate the effect of a technique or they overestimate the effect of a technique. So, you know, the example of like you know, neck breaks, you know, if I, if I do this is, is neck will break. Well, the neck is pretty resilient. So I think people kind of overestimate the effectiveness of those techniques and sometimes you see people underestimating them as well so you know classic example is if i whack him hard in the carotid sinus he'll pass out but that'll cause no real damage well that ain't true it will cause damage so for both safety in training and to make sure that our responses are uh, appropriate you know we're not hitting that drunk uncle at the wedding to use that classical scenario on his carotid sinus believing it'll do no damage you see so, yeah, I think we do. We, we do need to do that. And we need to consult with the, the medical personnel who better understand this stuff and then make sure we have a, a good understanding uh, of the effects of the human body, particularly with regards to techniques that are, are, are difficult to test. 
you know, so there's certain ones that are easy to test, like, you know, throws and stuff. And we all know that, you know, you punch a guy on the jaw, you knock him out. You know, we kind of know that stuff. Um, but things like, you know, eye gouges, kicks to the groin, all that kind of stuff, the neck cranking stuff. We obviously don't do that with force in the dojo. So we need to rely on what the experts are telling us on those things. So we have a more realistic expectation of the effect it may have and, and that we don't kind of either over or underestimate that effect. Next question is from John Reed. He said, do you think that martial arts have been watered down? Too much people run it as a business and putting money first and standard second. So I've got mixed feelings on this one, you see, because uh, we did a podcast on this a few years ago, quite a few years ago, on money in the martial arts. And we have no doubt that some people are unethical, really, and, and teach poor quality martial arts, but make good money from, from doing so. Uh, they're, they're really good at the kind of the marketing, the promotion, all of that kind of stuff, but the martial arts aren't that great. That's obviously concerning because it results in bad martial arts being uh, propagated. But there's another side to that. I think sometimes people take a holier-than-thou attitude with it. So they go, no, no, I've, I, I don't make any money from the martial arts at all, and you know, I, I teach it solely for the love of the art. And you know, well, that's fine, but you know, we do need money for things like advertising and providing equipment and providing a good training environment for students. So, so if if you make poverty, if you like, into a virtue, there's a problem there. Because then what happens is those poor quality schools have the money and the expertise to promote what they do to the wider public. The good martial artists, meanwhile, are teaching a handful of students in a less than ideal location, using less than ideal equipment. So what I would suggest the good martial artists need to do is learn the business side of it too. So therefore, you're competing with the poor quality martial artists. Put them out of business. That's the way we deal with them, not by lamenting how virtuous we are from our position of poverty. What we should do is we should learn those skills, make sure that you're providing then the alternative. So the student can either pay a fortune for bad quality martial arts or they can pay a fair amount for good quality martial arts. And people are going to make that second choice. So while I do think, you know, that there, there is a danger of people putting money first and standard second, right? But, but my own view on that is that tends to be a short-term business model as well, right? Or, or you're relying on very high turnover. Uh, if you want to be successful as a martial arts business, you need your product to be as good as possible too. So if you're teaching really good quality stuff in a really good quality way and you're charging fair money for it, that, that, that's when everything starts to, um, to, to go well and, and you provide the, the, the valid alternative to the, to the charlatans. Of course, you know, it can't all be about money, right? You know, and I don't ever want money to be an exclusion to the martial arts for people. So, um, like most people here, you know, some of your students sometimes, you know, they're a bit down on the look, particularly during the current pandemic. Money's not coming in, in which case you go, okay, you know, we're all in this together. Just, you know, don't pay anything. I'll pay what you can when you can. So, so I think that's a thing, you know, that you need to make sure that you look after your students first and foremost. Ensure that you've got good quality standards of martial arts, but having enough money to kind of keep the lights on and effectively compete with those who just want to fleece people from the money and are using martial arts as the vehicle to do that. You know, let's provide the good alternative. Let, let's learn those good business skills and, and put them to good use for the benefit of the martial arts. So the next question is from uh, Pierre Alan Shabot again. He said, uh, I like Motobu's two-person drills and I uh, wanted to add them to my syllabus. I found your Saini cutter through the app and I really appreciate it. Do I have your permission to teach it on my own curriculum? And if the answer is yes, at what stage do you think I should introduce it along with the related drills in the syllabus? I was only aiming for second queue or first queue at the moment. So, um, yeah, so for those who don't know, for my own personal practice, I quite like Motobu's drills. Uh, I, I was practicing them uh, in the dojo, of course, with people. Uh, then I, you know, start practicing them on my own. You know, just doing the solo representations of them. And then it dawned on me, right, I should really make a cat route of these. So I made a cat route of them for my own practice. Um, it's not one I've taught to my own students, actually, but I have taught it to people on uh, seminars and uh, th uh, things. And you know, people have shown a lot of interest in it. So that saney po cat is out there now. In terms of permission to teach it, uh, then the answer is yes. Of course, of course, you do. I, I always find that odd when people create things and share things and then go, but don't do anything with it. You know, I'm going to teach you these drills, but the my drills, don't you dare share them with anybody. Well, why would you ever go to that person to learn anything then? Why, why would you pay for an app subscription or why would you come to my seminars? The whole, the whole point is I want people to share it. I, I want to have a positive contribution to karate. Karate has been good to me. I'm incredibly grateful for it in my life. It's, it's such a big part of it. 
So I want to leave karate, hopefully, a little bit better than when I found it. Karate's been good to me. I want to be good to it. So if anyone out there finds what I do useful, then, you know, then by all means, you know, take it and, and, and teach it. So it's a little bit like my uh, two-person pin-hand drills as well. You know, th there's loads of clubs use those. I can think of at least 50 who've taken my two-person bunkai drills for the Pinan series, which are in the, um, the the DVDs, you know, they're on the videos for those, and, and they teach them to the students, and that's great. I mean, I would have an issue if someone put out their own DVD with the exact same drills on it. At that point, it's plagiarism. But to take the drills and, and to actually teach them in their own dojo, uh, no problem with that. I'm, I'm really glad. And, of course, they, they evolve, too. At some point, it's not mine anymore because people take them and change them and adapt them, and they do become theirs over time. So... Um, so as regards that, I think it would largely depend on your own syllabus as to when you'd introduce them. Um, so, but I would think, you know, Dan grades, early Dan grades, higher Q grades would seem about right to me. Uh, and the way I would do it is uh, I would teach a couple of drills for each grade and then have them accumulate that by learning the Saini Pokata once I've learned all the drills. Uh, you know, do the, the applications first, if you like, and then learn the kata at the end. You know, that, that was a more traditional way of doing things and I think that would make the most sense to people as well. This podcast brought to you by 2020. A year that has done as much for people's happiness as no-touch knockouts have done for practical martial arts. So the next question again is uh, from Pierre Arani. He says, do you think it's best to give a choice of cutters for each rank or do you completely let the student choose his own cutter and provide guidance afterwards? How do you approach this for done requirements in your school? So I think there's a danger if you let students choose the cutter from the off that they may end up learning an incomplete set. So early on, they decide they don't want to do one and they might never come back around to learn the thing, you know. So the way we do it is we have our uh, core cutters, which I've talked about previously, the kind of core 10, but we do have a, an additional five, which are there as secondary cutters. Uh, it's a requirement for um, a third down, fourth down, that they choose one of those. So we do have that, that little list, but they've already got the core cutters in place, really. Um, and at some point, you know, normally even when they've done that for the Dan requirements, they go, yeah, I don't know Gion yet, for example. So can you teach me Gion, Ian? And, you know, I will. For the pure knowledge of it, they don't really need it from a practical point of view because the other cutters have more than provided enough for them in that sense. But, but um, at the higher end, we do have that. We have that choice for... Um, the secondary cutters, you know, those, those extra five we have. And as I mentioned previously as well, they um, do have to choose a cutter from another style. So they've got f complete free reign on that as well. So, uh, yeah, but I think early on, I think it's, it's better if you tell the students, oh, these are the cutters we want you to learn. And then you're, then you're creating an holistic syllabus built around those cutters. Next one is from Dan Bryan. He said, are there any plans to return to the States for the seminars once the pandemic is over? Really always enjoy my time in the US. Uh, love to get back over there at, uh, at some point. At the moment, um, things are obviously stopped because of the pandemic. And uh, the fact is there's only so many weekends in the year so what's happened this year is because so many have been cancelled uh, they've moved across to next year which is now looking incredibly full in fact you know the early part of 2021 is in the same kind of situation so there'll be no immediate plans to go to the uh, um, the US for the, the, the time being but yeah and no, I'd love to get back out there I, I really do like it people are great always have a lot of fun over there so uh, so yeah at some point in the future I'll definitely be back Next question is from Terry Mungsfield. He said, in this ever-changing world, what do you think is the best way to promote your club and services so you stay financially afloat and to give your students the best you can? So, see, this is, again, it's not one of the things that I can really speak to as an expert on this. There are people who, who know this better than me. I have a, a small club. We train two or three times a week. Uh, small, dedicated group, um, and that's the way it's, it's, it's always been. Uh, I think because I'm relatively well known in the circle, people expect me to have a, a massive club or you know my own chain of dojos, and it's just not the route I, I went down. We have I have the small, dedicated club. Uh, and then in terms of uh, my income from the martial arts, the majority of that comes from um, uh, seminar teaching. Uh, in terms of, you know, so how to promote a club, then I, I'm not really the guy to ask for that because I've, I've never really done that to any successful um, high degree. But the one thing I would say is, you know, it, it's, this is the thing we need to learn that stuff. 
martial artists, good martial artists, need to be good at the business side of things too. They need to be good at the advertising. They need to be good at the promotion. So that way we can get rid of the charlatans and the poor quality martial arts, right? You know, it's no good, as I talked about earlier, if you've got good quality martial arts that nobody knows about because the owner of that school has no idea how to promote what they do. So social media is obviously something I've found particularly effective. I do like using Facebook for the club because I can uh, localize the advertisements to people who live in the local area. And we get a fairly good response from that. So Facebook advertising is, is one thing that, I, that I've found uh, particularly useful. Uh, I have a friend who's run a very successful club for a very, very long time. Uh, and he has a very, very good relationship with the local press as well. So he's forever sending them you know, reports and news of seminars and letting him know how gradings have gone and competitions have gone. So I think good relationships with the local promotion as, as, as well will, will, will help. Uh, and then you've got to be relentless with it too. You know, if you, if you want people to see what you do, and to benefit from what you do, you can't expect them to find you. You can't have this, you know, if I build it, they will come mentality. It just doesn't work that way. So it's one of the accusations that sometimes get thrown my way. Is they'll go, oh, yeah, but he's a shameless self-publicist. Yeah, I am. Because <laughs> no one else will do it for me. Do you know what I mean? If I don't get the word out for what I do, no one will know about it. I believe in what I do. I think what I do has value. So I want to share it with people. So, so I need to find out how to do that, which is why I'm relentless on you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and to a lesser degree, YouTube. You know, I, I try and get lots of things out there so people can see what it is, is, is I'm doing. For local clubs, it's a little bit different, of course, because you know, there's no point some guy who lives in another country learning about your club, really. You, know, you need to think about how to localize it um, a little bit more. But you know that there are courses on this kind of stuff. You know, if, if someone's running a martial arts school or you know a, a dojo, you know, there's there's lots of business courses on advertising and promotion, and people need to learn that stuff. A black belt won't give you that. And as I say, if you take this holier-than-thou attitude, you know, you know, we'll practice our martial arts in poverty. The trouble with that is, again, is no one knows you there. And if you you've got good stuff that people will benefit from, let people know about it. So, so yeah, I can't really speak to that one too much on a, a club level because it's not something I've greatly promoted. But I can say that I found Facebook to be particularly effective. I know friends have found good relationships with the local press to be effective. And I would encourage people that, you know, get training in advertising and promotion. You know, it, it, it's out there, you know, learn from the best and copy their models and make sure that you're doing what you can to make sure that good martial arts is, is everywhere. Next question is from Tracy Radley. She said, if you were starting a new club now uh, during all of the COVID restrictions and had several classes of white belts, what would you put most emphasis on teaching them and how would that differ to normal circumstances? So uh, it's not something I've done. You know, I, I, the one thing that has really surprised me during the COVID restrictions is I have had loads of requests for um, people wanting to start classes. Way more than normal, which I, I, I can't quite guess why that would be the case. I haven't promoted the club for ages because there's no point. Uh, but 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 I'm nevertheless get, getting these requests. If I had to guess, I'm putting that down to the fact that people are, have got one eye on what do I want to do once this thing is over. So there'll be a lot of people sitting there thinking, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And of course, they'll, they'll always put it off. You know, there's a certain type of person. Well, one day I'll learn martial arts. But when it's like, oh, I've always wanted to learn martial arts and now I can't. If you tell someone they can't do something, it's a great way to incentivize them to do it, right? It's just human nature. So, so I, I, I anticipate we'll see something of a boom in the martial arts when this is done. N maybe not immediately. It'll, it'll ramp up. But, but I think we'll see a lot of people going, oh, I've always wanted to do that and now's the time to do it. You know, I, I realize that I can't just rock up to the dojo whenever I feel like it, that circumstances can happen that'll prevent me from doing so. So I, I want to do it and I want to do it now. Uh, but if I was uh, teaching beginners, um, the only thing you can really do, especially when it's you know lockdown on, lockdown off, and socially distancing the club one minute and then the next minute we're all back online again, I, I'd be teaching them basic movement skills. You know, making sure that, you know, stances are good, basic punches are good, that the footwork is solid, all that kind of stuff. That's what I'd be putting the emphasis on. 
I'd also be making it clear to them that the way they're training is because of the current restrictions. Uh, so they understand that at a certain point, it will get to the point where it's more pragmatic and more hands-on. But in the certain circumstances, we're going to try and give them a set of skills to make that transition to partner work uh, a lot simpler. I'd also be reassuring them that that transition will be a gentle one. So if someone's been training for, say, six months during a pandemic, which is entirely possible, they may have done nothing but solo work for six months. And then the idea of having a partner throw punches at the head could be an intimidating thing. So I would be reassuring them that, yeah, we're going to start really gradual and gently. You know, you've got these great movement skills. We'll be able to do wonderful things with that once we get hands on. And I promise you, it'll be a nice gentle transition into that. So for me, it would be, you know, core skills, basic movement skills, footwork, basic techniques, uh, with an emphasis on, you know, we will be teaching how to use this more functionally when we get the opportunity, and we will do so in a very gradual way. So the next question is for Cameron Pease. He says, going into the new year, what would be your top three tips to new black belts and new instructors? So obviously we're going into the start of an unusual year now, but I'm going to give some kind of generic ones that I think are useful. So I think the first one, particularly for new instructors, is don't stop focusing on your own development, particularly if you find yourself dropping into a heavy teaching role. Uh, you need to make sure that you are still learning, that you are still practicing. Because uh, that's why you got into martial arts, right? You know, as much as you enjoy teaching, you know, you still enjoy doing. So make sure that you keep training. Make sure that you make time for that. That would be one uh, one, one tip. Uh, the other one for new instructors, I, I would remind them that instructing is a skill. So I think a lot of people, they get a black belt and in some groups they go, okay, now you can teach. And people find it incredibly difficult. You know, it's a skill that takes time to get good at. If you belong to a good group, they'll help you develop those teaching skills as well, if it's something that you want to move into, those coaching skills. Uh, but if not, I, I, I would say work on your teaching skills. Look at instructors that you admire. Look at how they conduct themselves and how they, they, they build up lesson plans. Look at what they're doing and try to, uh, to copy it. So the other one would be as well is make sure you remain motivated. So one of the great things about hitting your black belt is the grading process slows down, you know, because you're talking a minimum of two years before second down, three years for third down. That's how most groups conduct it, you know, four for fourth and so on. So training slows down. And sometimes people find that the grading syllabus has been their primary motivation, getting ready for the next grading. So I, I would make sure that you set goals for yourself. Uh, find things that you find intriguing and enjoy the fact that you've got a little bit more time to explore them. You can choose certain elements to dig deep in. So you may decide, okay, I really want to work on my grappling skills or you know, I really want to work on this element of my fitness or what, whatever it is. So they, they would be my top three tips, you know, was uh, for new black belts and instructors, you know. So first one is, you know, don't neglect your own development, you know, make sure that you keep training, you keep learning, you know, uh, for the new instructors, make sure you seek out guidance and inspiration on the instruction. And then of course, you know, now that the grading syllabus is not the primary motivator, it's a good thing because it creates space for you to start exploring things a little bit more. So make sure you use that and, and set, set uh, short term goals for yourself. Uh, in these elements so that you remain uh, remain motivated happy thought number three the pandemic has created a dam which has blocked up human innovation and creativity as a vaccine rolls out that dam is going to break and we're going to see some amazing things happen pretty quickly so the next question is from Mary Stevens. She says, I want you to ask about the process of constructing Tandoku. So for those who don't know, Tandoku is my solo pad drill cutter. It's uh, been in the app and we've done a lot of online lessons for, for app users, taught it to people and people have gone out, practiced it, sent me video and I've issued certificates of competence around it. Uh, it it's taken on a life of its own, that thing. It, it, it's really happy with how that's spreading. Uh, people adapting it and the other versions of it appearing. It's great. Really happy with that. So Mary continues. She says, we've been working on deconstructing it and I was thinking about downgrades being required to make their own cutter. She says, did you start from the principles you wanted to convey? Did you have a set length in mind? Did you change it a lot along the way? Uh, would you do it any differently now? Has it changed since it went into the wild? So so yeah, I did start with the principles I wanted to convey. So it's a solo pad drill cutter. So it's looking effectively about striking with the husband and wife hands concept. So you've got a pad on one hand, which which replicates the hand that you would have uh, holding the enemy's head, for example. Uh, and then all of the methods around that, uh, ways in which you can position yourself to deliver various kinds of strikes. 
I was also thinking about the, the reactions to impact that the human body has and what combinations would illustrate uh, in basic pr terms how to exploit those examples. So you're near a guy in the groin, his head comes forwards, right? You punch him low on the stomach, his head comes forwards. You elbow him in the head, his head goes back, his groin comes forwards. So those kind of reactions as well. So what I did was I thought, what's the minimum number of drills I can create which will convey the basics of that? And I decided on six. So for those who know the cat, they know the six sequences on one side, you then put the pad on the other hand and do the six sequences on the other side. So I did start from principles because I'm a grand believer in cutters being uh, minimalistic, as short as they can be, but no shorter. You don't want to be missing anything out. So in terms of did I have a set length in mind? No, you know, so um, I, I, I came up with these, you know, six drills. I thought, okay, those six drills convey everything I need them to convey. Six times two is 12 because you're doing it on both sides and that gave us the length. Uh, did you change it a lot along the way? Uh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, there was a couple of kind of prototypes uh, that I, I kind of tweaked as I went and added in little bits that I thought, oh, this will make it a little bit better. Or when I was practicing it, I thought, you know, the flow of that feels a bit clunky. How can I improve it? So it did change quite a lot uh, along the way, much to the frustration of some of my students during that phase, I must add, because as I was sharing it with them, as I was creating it, and therefore, you know, a week or two later, I'd go, okay, that bit, I've decided to add an elbow in here or a headbutt in here or whatever it was. So it, it did get tweaked. Uh, would you do any of it differently now? N no, I'm quite happy with it now. Uh, what I've settled on is is how I, I, I like it. Uh, and has it changed since it went in the wild? It has. So as people have learnt it, they've added their own little interpretations to it. They've changed things. Give an example. There's a sequence in the um, the the, the, the cutter, uh, the third sequence, where it's got a, a head button and a knee. So you do the head butt, that person's head goes back, groin comes forwards. There's a knee to the groin, which brings his head forwards and down. There's a double uppercut delivered to the face, which would drive the head back up. And then you hit with a cross to finish. So that's a sequence done against the pad. Uh, one of the guys that trains with us said, you know, rather than the rising uh, uppercut, I like rising palm heels. So he does it upper palm heel, upper palm heel, palm heel, rather than uppercut, uppercut, cross. You know, perfectly le legit. And again, in the videos that people have sent me, they've made little tweaks and changes too. So, But that's I wanted that to happen. That That's what a good cutter should do, is people should learn it and go, yes, I can make use of this. But then they adapt it. So you see that, you know, if you look at the, Cutters in the Shotokan Canon, for example, um, they are done in a Shotokan way, and the Shitoryu cutters are done in a Shitoryu way. So when Tandoku goes out there, you would hope the people would adapt it so it fits the rest of what it is they're, uh, they're doing. So yeah, I've really enjoyed that. It's been a little bit of living archaeology, if you like, creating a modern cutter on modern kit and then seeing it develop. It's, it's, it's been fun, you know. It, it is an enjoyable process to, to make your own cutter. It does give you uh, insights into the, the traditional cutter. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a process I would encourage others to, can, uh, to consider. End of part one. Please turn over the cassette... For part two. And you know for a fact no one under 30 has a clue what I've just talked about. <laughs>